Book 15, Part 4b of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Broadrib. Book 15, A.D. 62 through 65. Part 4b. Nero hated and conspired against. In quick succession, Nero added the murder of Plautius Lateranus, consul-elect, so promptly that he did not allow him to embrace his children, or to have the brief choice of his own death. He was dragged off to a place set apart for the execution of slaves, and butchered by the hand of the tribune Statius, maintaining a resolute silence, and not reproaching the tribune with complicity in the plot. Then followed the destruction of Aeneas Seneca, a special joy to the emperor, not because he had convicted him of the conspiracy, but anxious to accomplish with the sword what poison had failed to do. It was, in fact, Natalus alone who divulged Seneca's name, to this extent that he had been sent to Seneca when ailing, to see him and remonstrate with him for excluding Piso from his presence, and it would have been better to have kept up their friendship by familiar intercourse. That Seneca's reply was that mutual conversations and frequent interviews were to the advantage of neither, but still that his own life depended on Piso's safety. Gavius Silvanus, tribune of a praetorian cohort, was ordered to report this to Seneca, and to ask him whether he had acknowledged what Natalus said and his own answer. Either by chance or purposefully, Seneca had returned on that day from Campania, and had stopped at a country house four miles from Rome. Thither the tribune came next evening, surrounded the house with troops of soldiers, and then made known the emperor's message to Seneca, as he was at dinner with his wife, Pompeia Paulina, and two friends. Seneca replied that Natalus had been sent to him, and had complained to him in Piso's name because of his refusal to see Piso, upon which he excused himself on the ground of failing health and the desire of rest. He had no reason, said he, for preferring the interest of any private citizen to his own safety, and he had no natural aptitude for flattery. No one knew this better than Nero, who had oftener experienced Seneca's free-spokenness than his servility. When the tribune reported this answer, in the presence of Popeia and Tigellinus, the emperor's most confidential advisers in his moments of rage, he asked whether Seneca was meditating suicide. Upon this the tribune asserted that he saw no signs of fear, and perceived no sadness in his words or in his looks. He was accordingly ordered to go back and to announce sentence of death. Fabius Rusticus tells us that he did not return the way he came, but went out of his course to Phineas, commander of the guard, and having explained to him the emperor's orders, asked whether he was to obey them, was by him admonished to carry them out, for a fatal spell of cowardice was on them all. For this very Silvanus was one of the conspirators, and he was now abetting the crimes which he had united with them to avenge. But he spared himself the anguish of a word or of a look, and merely sent in to Seneca one of his centurions, who was to announce to him his last doom. Seneca, quite unmoved, asked for tablets on which to inscribe his will, and, on the centurion's refusal, turned to his friends, protesting that, as he was forbidden to requite them, he bequeathed to them the only, but still the noblest possession yet remaining to him the pattern of his life, which, if they remembered, they would win a name for moral worth and steadfast friendship. 
At the same time, he called them back from their tears to manly resolution, now with friendly talk, and now with the sterner language of rebuke. Where, he asked again and again, are your maxims of philosophy, or the preparation of so many years' study against evils to come? Who knew not Nero's cruelty? After a mother's and a brother's murder, nothing remains but to add the destruction of a guardian and a tutor. Having spoken these and like words, meant, so to say, for all, he embraced his wife. Then, softening a while from the stern resolution of the hour, he begged and implored her to spare herself the burden of perpetual sorrow, and, in the compilation of a life virtuously spent, to endure a husband's loss with honorable consolations. She declared in answer that she too had decided to die, and claimed for herself the blow of the executioner. Thereupon Seneca, not to thwart her noble ambition, from an affection, too, which would not leave behind him for insult one whom he loved dearly, replied, I have shown you the ways of smoothing life. You prefer the glory of dying. I will not grudge you such a noble example. Let the fortitude of so courageous an end be alike in both of us. But let there be more in your decease to win fame. Then, by one and the same stroke, they sundered with the dagger the arteries of their arms. Seneca, as his aged frame, attenuated by frugal diet, allowed the blood to escape but slowly, severed also the veins of his legs and knees. Worn out by cruel anguish, afraid too that his sufferings might break his wife's spirit, and that, as he looked on her tortures, he might himself sink into irresolution, he persuaded her to retire into another chamber. Even at the last moment his eloquence failed him not. He summoned his secretaries, and dictated much to them which, as it has been published for all readers in his own words, I forbear to paraphrase. Nero, meanwhile, having no personal hatred against Paulina, and not wishing to heighten the odium of his cruelty, forbade her death. At the soldier's prompting, her slaves and freedmen bound up her arms, and stanched the bleeding, whether with her knowledge is doubtful. For, as the vulgar are ever ready to think the worst, there were persons who believed that, as long as she dreaded Nero's relentlessness, she sought the glory of sharing her husband's death, but that after a time, when a more soothing prospect presented itself, she yielded to the charms of life. To this she added a few subsequent years, with a most praiseworthy remembrance of her husband, and with a countenance and frame white, to a degree of pallor which denoted a loss of much vital energy. Seneca, meantime, as the tedious process of death still lingered on, begged Statius Annaeus, whom he had long esteemed for his faithful friendship and medical skill, to produce a poison, with which he had some time before provided himself, some drug which extinguished the life of those who were condemned by a public sentence of the people of Athens. It was brought to him, and he drank it in vain, chilled as he was throughout his limbs, and his frame closed against the efficacy of the poison. At last he entered a pool of heated water, from which he sprinkled the nearest of his slaves, adding the exclamation, I offer this liquid as a libation to Jupiter the Deliverer. He was then carried into a bath, with the stream of which he was suffocated, and he was burnt without the usual funeral rites. So he had directed in a codicil of his will, when even in the height of his wealth and power he was thinking of his life's close. There was a rumor that Siberius Flavus had held a secret consultation with the centurions, and had planned, not without Seneca's knowledge, that when Nero had been slain by Piso's instrumentality, Piso also was to be murdered, and the empire handed over to Seneca, as a man singled out for his splendid virtues by all persons of integrity. 
Even a saying of Flavius was popularly current, that it mattered not as to the disgrace if a harp player were removed and a tragic actor succeeded him. For, as Nero used to sing to the harp, so did Piso in the dress of a tragedian. The soldiers' part two in the conspiracy no longer escaped discovery, some in their rage becoming informers to betray Phineas Rufus, whom they could not endure to be both an accomplice and a judge. Accordingly, Scyvenus, in order to his brow-breathing and menaces, said with a smile that no one knew more than he did, and actually urged him to show gratitude to so good a prince. Phineas could not meet this with either speech or silence. Halting in his words, and visibly terror-stricken with the rest, especially Cervarius Proculus, a Roman knight, did their utmost to convict him. He was, at the emperor's beating, halting in his words, and visibly terror-stricken, while the rest, especially Cervarius Proculus, a Roman knight, did their utmost to convict him. He was, at the emperor's bidding, seized and bound by Cassius, a soldier, who, because of his well-known strength of limb, was in attendance. Shortly afterwards, the information of the same men proved fatal to Superius Flavus. At first, he grounded his defense on his moral contrast to the others, implying that an armed soldier like himself would never have shared such an attempt with unarmed and effeminate associates. Then, when he was pressed, he embraced the glory of a full confession. Questioned by Nero as to the motives which had led him to forget his oath of allegiance, I hated you, he replied, yet not a soldier was more loyal to you while you deserved to be loved. I began to hate you when you became the murderer of your mother and your wife, a charioteer, an actor, and an incendiary. I have given the man's very words, because they were not, like those of Seneca, generally published, though the rough and vigorous sentiments of a soldier ought to be no less known. Throughout the conspiracy, nothing, it was certain, fell with more terror on the ears of Nero, who was as unused to be told of the crimes he had perpetrated, as he was eager in their perpetration. The punishment of Flavus was entrusted to Veinus Niger, a tribune. At his direction, a pit was dug in a neighboring field. Flavus, on seeing it, censured it as too shallow and confined, saying to the soldiers around him, Even this is not according to military rule. When bidden to offer his neck resolutely, I wish, said he, that your stroke may be as resolute. The tribune trembled greatly, and having only just severed his head at two blows, vaunted his brutality to Nero, saying that he had slain him with a blow and a half. Sulpicius Asper, a centurion, exhibited the next example of fortitude. To Nero's question why he had conspired to murder him, he briefly replied that he could not have rendered a better surface to his infamous career. He then underwent the prescribed penalty, nor did the remaining centurions forget their courage in suffering their punishment. But Phineas Rufus had not equal spirit. He even put his laments into his will. Nero waited in the hope that Vestinus, also the consul, whom he thought an impetuous and deeply disaffected man, would be involved in the charge. None, however, of the conspirators had shared their counsels with him, some from old feuds against him, most because they considered him a reckless and dangerous associate. Nero's hatred of him had his origin in intimate companionship. Vestinus, seeing through and despairing the emperor's cowardice, while Nero feared the high spirit of his friend, who often bantered him with that rough humor which, when it draws largely on facts, leaves a bitter memory behind it. There was, too, a recent aggravation in the circumstance of Vestinus having married Statilia Messalina, 
without being ignorant that the emperor was one of her paramours. As neither judge nor accuser appeared, Nero, being thus unable to assume the semblance of a judge, had recourse to the sheer might of despotism, and dispatched Gerilanus, a tribune, with a cohort of soldiers and with orders to forestall the designs of the consul, to seize what he might call his fortress, and to crush his train of chosen youths. For Vestinus had a house towering over the forum, and a host of handsome slaves of the same age. On that day he had performed all his duties as consul, and was entertaining some guests, fearless of danger, or perhaps, by way of hiding his fears, when the soldiers entered and announced to him the tribune's summons. He rose without a moment's delay, and every preparation was at once made. He shut himself into his chamber. A physician was at his side. His veins were open. With life still strong in him, he was carried into a bath and plunged into warm water, without uttering a word of pity for himself. Meanwhile, the guards surrounded those who sat at the table, and it was only at a late hour of the night that they were dismissed, when Nero, having pictured to himself and laughed over their terror at the expectation of a fatal end to their banquet, said that they had suffered enough punishment for the consul's entertainment. Next, he ordered the destruction of Marcus Annius Lucanus. As the blood flowed freely from him, and he felt a chill creeping through his heart and hands, and the life gradually ebbing from his extremities, though the heart was still warm, and he retained his mental power, Lucanus recalled some poetry he had composed in which he told the story of a wounded soldier dying a similar kind of death, and he recited the very lines. These were his last words. After him, Senecio, Quintianus, and Scyvenus perished, not in the manner expected from the past effeminacy of their life, and then the remaining conspirators, without deed or word deserving record. Rome all this time was thronged with funerals, the capital with sacrificial victims, one after another on the destruction of a brother, a kinsman, or a friend, would return thanks to the gods, deck his house with laurels, prostrate himself at the knees of the emperor, and weary his hands with kisses. He, in the belief that this was rejoicing, rewarded with impunity the prompt informations of Antonius Natalus and Carvarius Proculus. Milcius was enriched with gifts and assumed in its Greek equivalent the name of Savior. Of the tribunes, Gavius Silvanus, though acquitted, perished by his own hand. Statius Proximus threw away the benefit of the pardon he had accepted from the emperor by the folly of his end. Cornelius Martialis, Flavius Nepos, Statius Domitius were then deprived of the tribuneship, on the ground not of actually hating the emperor, but having the credit of it. Novius Priscus, as Seneca's friend, Glitius Gallus, and Annius Polio, as men disgraced rather than convicted, escaped with sentences of banishment. Priscus and Gallus were accompanied respectively by their wives, Astoria Flacilla and Ignatia Maximilla. The latter possessed at first a great fortune, still unimpaired, and was subsequently deprived of it, both which circumstances enhanced her fame. Rufius Crispinus, too, was banished, on the opportune pretext of the conspiracy, but he was in fact hated by Nero, because he had once been Popea's husband. It was the splendor of their name which drove Virginius Flavius and Musonius Rufus into exile. Virginius encouraged the studies of our youth by his eloquence, Rufius by the teachings of philosophy. Cluvidianus Quietus, Julius Agrippa, Blitus Catulinus, Petronius Priscus, Julius Altinus, 
mere rank and file, so to say, had islands in the Aegean Sea assigned to them. Caedicia, the wife of Scyvenus, and Caesonius Maximus were forbidden to live in Italy, the penalty being the only proof they had of having been accused. Attilia, the mother of Annius Lucanus, without either acquittal or punishment, was simply ignored. All this having been completed, Nero assembled the troops and distributed two thousand sesterces to every common soldier, with the addition of as much corn without payment, as they had previously the use of at the marketplace. Then, as if he was going to describe successes in war, he summoned the Senate, and awarded triumphal honors to Petronius Turpianus, an ex-consul, to Cocaeus Nerva, praetor-elect, and to Tigellinus, commander of the praetorians. Tigellinus and Nerva he so distinguished as to place busts of them in the palace in addition to triumphal statues in the forum. He granted a consul's decorations to Nymphidius, on whose origin, as he now appears for the first time, I will briefly touch, for he too will be a part of Rome's calamities. The son of a freedwoman, who had prostituted a handsome person amongst the slaves and freedmen of the emperors, he gave out that he was the offspring of Gaius Caesar, for he happened to be of tall stature and to have a fierce look. Or, possibly Gaius Caesar, who liked even harlots, had also amused himself with the man's mother. Nero, meanwhile, summoned the Senate, addressed them in a speech, and further added a proclamation to the people, with the evidence which had been entered on records, and the confessions of the condemned. He was indeed perpetually under the lash of popular talk, which said that he had destroyed men perfectly innocent out of jealousy or fear. However, that a conspiracy was begun, matured, and conclusively proved, was not doubted at the time by those who took pains to ascertain the truth, and is admitted by those who, after Nero's death, returned to the capital. When, everyone in the Senate, those especially who had most cause to mourn, abased himself in flattery, Salianus Clemens denounced Junius Gallio, who was terror-strucken at his brother Seneca's death, was pleading for his life. He called him an enemy and traitor to the state, till the unanimous voice of the senators deterred him from perverting public miseries into an occasion for a personal resentment, and thus importing fresh bitterness into what, by the prince's clemency, had been hushed up or forgotten. Then offerings and thanksgivings to the gods were decreed, with special honors to the sun, who has an ancient temple in the circus, where the crime was planned, as having revealed by his power the secrets of the conspiracy. The games, too, of Ceres and the circuits were to be celebrated with more horse races, and the month of April was to be called after the name of Nero. A temple was also to be erected to safety, on the spot where Scyvenus had taken his dagger. The emperor himself dedicated the weapon in the temple of the capital, and inscribed on it, To Jupiter the Avenger. This passed without notice at the moment, but after the war of Julius Vindex, it was construed as an omen and presage of impending vengeance. I find in the registers of the Senate that Caryalis Anicius, consul-elect, proposed a motion that a temple should as soon as possible be built at the public expense to the divine Nero. He implied indeed by this proposal that the prince had transcended all mortal grandeur and deserved the adoration of mankind. Some, however, interpreted it as an omen of his death, seeing that divine honors are not paid to an emperor till he has ceased to live among men. End of Book 15